Section 12 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth and Four Volumes, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 50 The Spirit of Junius. While all this was going on, a new force suddenly made itself felt in English political life. The king and his ministers found themselves attacked by a mysterious and dangerous opponent. On March 21, 1769, a letter was addressed to the public advertiser, signed Junius, which marked the beginning of a new era in political literature. At that time, the public advertiser was the most important paper in London. It had first appeared under that name in 1752, but it was the direct descendant, through a series of changes of name, of the Daily Post, which Defoe had helped to start in 1719. It had its rivals in the Daily Advertiser, which was founded in 1724, and the Gazetteer and New Daily Advertiser, which was started in 1728. In the course of time, both these journals had sunk to be little more than advertising sheets. They gave hardly any news, and they had no political influence. The public advertiser was a much more important paper. It gave abundance of foreign and domestic intelligence, it had original contributions in prose and verse, and its columns were always open to letters from correspondents of all kinds on all manner of subjects. It was not until the first letter signed with the signature of Junius appeared that the paper assumed a serious political importance. The writer, whoever he was, who chose that signature, had written before in the columns of the public advertiser. In 1767, Woodfall, the publisher, received the first letter from the correspondent who was to become so famous and from time to time other letters came signed by various names taken from classical nomenclature, such as Niemann, Atticus, Lucius, Brutus, Domitian, Windex, and perhaps Poplicola. But it was with the adoption of the name Junius that the real importance of the letters began. They came at a crisis. They spoke for the popular side. They spoke with a bitterness and a ferocity that had hitherto not been attempted in political journalism. The great French writer Ten has said that the letters of Junius at a time of national irritation and anxiety fell one by one like drops of fire on the fevered limbs of the body politic. He goes on to say that if Junius made his phrases concise and selected his epithets, it was not from a love of style, but in order the better to stamp his insult. Oratorical artifices in his hand became instruments of torture, and when he filed his periods it was to drive the knife deeper and surer, with an audacity of denunciation and sternness of animosity, with a corrosive and burning irony applied to the most secret corners of private life with an inexorable persistence of calculated and meditated persecution. The first letters of Junius were devoted to an altercation with Sir William Draper over the character in the first place of Lord Granby 
and in the second place of Lord Granby's defender, Sir William Draper. Sir William, though he fought stoutly for his friend and stoutly for himself, did neither himself nor his friend much good by engaging in the controversy. He was no match for the weapons of Junius. He had neither the wit nor the venom of his antagonist. But the great interest of the letters began when Junius, taking up the cause of Wilkes, struck at higher game than Sir William Draper or Lord Granby. His first letter to the Duke of Grafton was an indictment of the Duke for the conduct of the Crown in the case of a murder trial arising out of the Brentford election. A young man named George Clark had been killed in a riot, and a man named Edward McQuirk was tried and found guilty of the murder. A kind of hugger-mugger inquest produced a declaration that Clark's death was not caused by the blow he had received from his assailant, and in consequence, whereas a doubt has arisen in our royal breast, the king formally pardoned the murderer by royal proclamation. On this theme, Junius lashed Grafton and concluded his letter with a direct allusion to Wilkes. He asked if Grafton had forgotten while he was withdrawing this desperate wretch from that justice which the laws had awarded and which the whole people of England demanded, that there was another man, the favorite of his country, whose pardon would have been accepted with gratitude, whose pardon would have healed all divisions. Have you quite forgotten that this man was once your grace's friend, or is it to murderers only that you will extend the mercy of the crown? The attack thus daringly begun was steadily maintained. Wilkes had no keener, no acuter champion than Junius. With great skill, Junius avoided all appearance of violent partisanship. He was careful to censure much in Wilkes's conduct, careful to discriminate between Wilkes's private character and Wilkes's public conduct. The unjustifiable action of the House of Commons in forcing Colonel Luttrell upon the electors of Middlesex gave Junius the opportunity of assailing Wilkes's enemies without appearing to champion Wilkes to the utterance. Junius admitted that the Duke of Grafton might have had some excuse in his opposition to Wilkes on account of Wilkes' character, and might have earned the approval of men who, looking no further than to the object before them, were not dissatisfied with seeing Mr. Wilkes excluded from Parliament. But Junius went on to argue, You have now taken care to shift the question, or rather you have created a new one, in which Mr. Wilkes is no more concerned than any other English gentleman. You have united the country against you on one grand constitutional point, on the decision of which our existence as a free people absolutely depends. You have asserted, not in words but in fact, that representation in Parliament does not depend upon the choice of the freeholders. The authorship of the letters of Junius is one of those problems, like the problems of the identity of the man in the Iron Mask, which has never been settled with absolute certainty, and which probably never will be settled with absolute certainty. But between absolute certainty and the highest degree of probability, 
there is no very great gulf fixed, and it is in the highest degree probable that the author of the letters was Philip Francis. The letters have been attributed to all manner of men. They were ascribed absurdly enough to Wilkes. Wilkes could write bitterly, and he could write well, but he could write neither so well nor so bitterly as Mr. Woodfall's correspondent. Dr. Johnson, who ought to have known better, thought they were written by Burke. It is his excuse that there did not seem at the time any man of the same ability as the writer of the letters except Burke. But Dr. Johnson, who had been quick enough to recognize the genius of the anonymous author of the essay on the sublime and the beautiful, erred when he thought that the same hand penned the anonymous letters. The prose of Burke was as far above the prose of Junius as the prose of Junius was above the prose of Wilkes. None of the letters surpasses in ferocity, none approaches in excellence the letter which Burke wrote to the noble duke who had slandered him. The letters were attributed to Barre, they were attributed to Lee, who was yet to earn another kind of fame, they were attributed to many hands. To us, at least, it seems clear that they were the work of Philip Francis. The electors of Middlesex did petition against the substitution of the despised Luttrell for the adored Wilkes. The consideration of the petition was the occasion for one of the most memorable debates that can be recorded of an age rich in memorable debates. On the one side, the influence of the ministry and the influence of the king induced Blackstone to deny himself and to falsify those principles of constitutional law with which his name is associated. On the other side, principles as little honorable but a far acuter political perception urged Wedderburn, who was nominally a king's man, to go over to the popular cause with the air of a Coriolanus. On the one side, Fletcher Norton upheld the authority of the resolution. On the other side, George Grenville argued against it with an acumen which showed that an able lawyer might have been a great lawyer. In that famous debate, Burke spoke at his best, and yet the event of that debate was not the speech of Burke, was not the speech of the experienced politician, of the seasoned statesman, of the famous man of letters, but the speech of a young man who was almost a boy, the speech of Charles James Fox. All who have written on the debate agree in their admiration of the speech of one who, as far as Parliament was concerned, was but a raw lad, and who nevertheless held his own on a point of law against experienced lawyers, in statesmanship against Grenville, and in eloquence against Burke. Of course the petition of Middlesex was rejected, the election of Luttrell was confirmed. On the day of the confirmation, the king prorogued Parliament in a foolish speech, in which he seemed to think that he had gained a victory. But if the king and the ministry believed or hoped that in expelling Wilkes from Parliament they had got rid of Wilkes for good and all, if they believed or hoped that in thus degrading Wilkes they would deprive him of his popularity with the people, or even diminish that popularity, they were speedily to be undeceived and bitterly disappointed. 
both king and ministers knew their business very badly. With limitations of intelligence which would have been disastrous in the conduct of a small shop, they came in this instance, as in other instances, within measurable distance of wrecking a royalty. It is probable that Franklin, shrewd, cool observer though he was, went too far when he wrote in his journal that if George III had had a bad private character and John Wilkes a good one, the latter might have turned the former out of his kingdom. But it is certain that the signs of the king's unpopularity were now as significant as were the signs of Wilkes' popularity. It had been said that at this time a good half of the king's subjects preferred Wilkes to their king. The estimate is probably under rather than above the fact. Wilkes was placed in the position of being the champion of all the rights and liberties that Englishmen most prized. The king, in the position of being their most uncompromising, most obstinate opponent. Thus, while honors were offered daily to the prisoner of the king's bench, insults were daily offered to his royal enemy. The king could scarcely go abroad without becoming the object of a demonstration of popular disfavor, and even in his palace he could not escape from deputations empowered in protest against the conduct of his ministers. In all parts of the kingdom public meetings were held, and from these public meetings petitions poured in upon the king, calling upon him to dissolve his parliament. It has been truly observed that the custom of holding public meetings for the discussion of public grievances dates from this period. On two solemn occasions the Lord Mayor of London, accompanied by the sheriffs, presented addresses to the king, remonstrating against the action of the House of Commons. To the first address, the king replied that it was disrespectful to him, injurious to Parliament, and irreconcilable to the principles of the Constitution. After which reply, he could think of nothing better, nothing more kingly to do, than to turn around to his courtiers, and burst out laughing. He treated the second address with the same insolence, an insolence which provoked from the Lord Mayor an uncourtierly reply, which reminded the King that those who endeavoured to alienate the King's affections from his subjects were violators of the public peace and betrayers of the Constitution established by the Glorious Revolution. These words were afterwards inscribed in gold upon the monument of the Mayor who spoke them. If those words and words of like purport and temper at first moved the king to laughter, they soon exasperated him past laughing. Once he clapped his hand to his sword-hilt, and declared that he would sooner have recourse to that than grant a dissolution. The tension of public feeling can best be estimated when a constitutional sovereign on the one side could dare to make such a remark, when a representative of the people like Colonel Barre on the other side could dare in the House of Commons to say, that disregard of public petitions might lead the people to think of assassination. While the king was insulted and insulting, and longing to stifle opposition by the sword, John Wilkes in his prison was receiving new proofs of the place he held in public affection. He was elected alderman for the ward of Farringdon without. We are told that his table at the prison was daily supplied with the most rare and costly delicacies, presented to him by his admirers. 
the mysterious Chevalier Deon sent him a present of Russian smoked tongues, with the whimsical wish that they could have the eloquence of Cicero and the delicacy of Voltaire to do him honour. Friendly revellers sent him hampers of the wine he liked the best. More serious gifts were laid at his feet. For a while, money literally reigned in upon him. The leading Whigs provided him with an income. Nobles and great ladies sent him large sums. A number of politicians banded together under the title of the Society for Supporting the Bill of Rights, and raised a great deal of money, much of which went in meeting some of the heavy debts with which Wilkes was embarrassed, much of which went in keeping up the princely way of living which suited Wilkes's temperament, and which was perhaps not unsuited to the part he was playing as the rival of a prince. In the public press, on the platform, on the stage, his influence was enormous. His good pleasure sent politicians to Parliament, his good pleasure made London sheriffs, made provincial mayors, while the false rumour that he was the author of the letters of Junius only swelled the volume of his fame, the author of those letters was adding to Wilkes's pride and power by public championship and by private letters choking with an adulation that seemed strange indeed from so savage a pen. If Garrick dared for a moment to run counter to popular feeling, as a little earlier he had dared to disdain the praise of Churchill, he had to give way in the case of Wilkes, as he had given way in the case of Wilkes's poet. The very name of Wilkes drove men on both sides of the quarrel into a kind of frenzy. Alexander Cruden of the Concordance showed his devotion to his king and his dislike of Wilkes by carrying a large sponge with him whenever he went abroad in order that he might wipe out the ominous number 45 whenever he saw it chalked up. As the number was chalked up everywhere by the Wilkites, Cruden soon found the task beyond his powers. It was lucky for him that he got no harm in his zeal, lucky for him that he did not come across that militant clergyman who pulled the nose of a Scotch naval officer for attacking Wilkes and then met his man in Hyde Park and wounded him. On April 17, 1770, Wilkes's term of imprisonment came to an end. Wilkes immediately started for Bath to avoid a demonstration in London, but London was illuminated in his honour, and in a great number of provincial towns his release was celebrated with all the signs of a national holiday. If he had been a hero in prison, he was no less a hero out of it. He moved from triumph to triumph, while Alderman, he won a victory over the court and the commons, which did much to establish the liberty of the press in England. The House of Commons, in a foolish attempt to suppress reports of the debates in Parliament, tried to arrest certain printers. Wilkes and the Lord Mayor took the printers' part, advised them to conceal themselves, and in their turn arrested those who, in obedience to a royal proclamation and the orders of the House, arrested the printers. The House of Commons committed the Lord Mayor and Alderman Oliver to the Tower and summoned Wilkes to appear at the bar. Wilkes coolly replied that as a member of Parliament, and as he was not addressed as a member of Parliament should be, in order to attend in his place according to custom, he should ignore the summons. 
the house made a second and yet a third order for his appearance each of which wilkes treated with disdain it is a significant proof of the power of wilkes's popularity that the house did not take any steps to punish his contumacy while it affected to find a consolation in the assurances of the king that wilkes was below the notice of the house it had to endure as best it might an affront resentment of which would only have added to wilkes's popularity the honours paid to the lord mayor and the aldermen during their imprisonment showed only too plainly that hostility to the court and the parliamentary majority was heroism in the eyes of the majority of the citizens of london once again wilkes had won the day from that time onward parliament put no embargo upon the publication of reports of its debates fresh honours were showered on wilkes he was elected sheriff he was presented by the court of common council with a silver goblet designed according to his own wish with the representation of the death of caesar and graced with the ominous motto from one of the poems of churchill may every tyrant feel the keen deep searchings of a patriot steel a citation which taken in conjunction with barre's wild talk in the house about assassination was sufficiently significant of the temper of the time wilkes had been alderman he had been sheriff he was now to bear the crown of civic honours he was put in nomination for the office of lord mayor the court party made a desperate effort to defeat him they had tried and failed to prevent him from being elected to parliament they had tried and failed to prevent him from being made alderman from being made sheriff they now tried with all their might to prevent him from being made lord mayor wilkes had much to fight against there were defections from his own party the once devoted horn had squabbled with his idol over money matters and was now as venomous an enemy as he had been a fulsome partisan alderman townsend an ex-lord mayor strained all his influence which was great in the city against wilkes a wild rumour got about at one time indeed that townsend had settled the difficulty of the court forever by challenging wilkes and shooting him dead the story had no foundation but for a moment it flattered the hopes of wilkes's enemies and fluttered the hearts of wilkes's friends the opposition ended as opposition to wilkes always ended twice he was placed at the head of the poll and twice the court of aldermen chose another candidate the third time in the election of seventeen seventy four wilkes was at last chosen as lord mayor by the court of aldermen in despite of the unwearied efforts of the court party to defeat him thus wrote walpole after so much persecution by the court after so many attempts upon his life after a long imprisonment in jail after all his own crimes and indiscretions did this extraordinary man of more extraordinary fortune attain the highest office in so grave and important a city as the capital of england always reviving the more opposed and oppressed and unable to shock fortune and make her laugh at him who laughed at everybody and everything it has been well said by mr fraser ray that the significance of election to the office of lord mayor was very much greater more than a hundred years ago than it is now then the chief magistrate of the city was not necessarily a man who had passed through certain minor offices and who rose by routine to fill the highest at that time the corporation was a political power 
which ministers had to take into account and which sovereigns had to propitiate a greater triumph than the mayoralty followed in quick succession at the general election of seventeen seventy four wilkes came forward again and for the fifth time as candidate for middlesex this time he was not opposed luttrell abandoned an impossible position and did not stand ten years after wilkes's first appearance in the house of commons he returned to it again in triumph as the member for middlesex and the lord mayor of london and here on the top of his triumph wilkes may be said to drop through the tissue of our history he was to live nearly a quarter of a century longer three and twenty years of a life that was as calm and peaceful as the hot manhood that preceded it had been vexed and unquiet although he lives in history as one of the most famous of the world's agitators he had in his heart little affection for the life of a public man and the publicity of the civic official was especially distasteful to him he hated the gross festivals the gross pleasures the gross display of city life he sickened of the long hours spent in the business of mayoralty he sickened yet more of the pleasures incidental to mayoralty though he remained in parliament for many years and conducted himself there with zeal discretion and statesmanship and always or almost always proved himself to be the champion of liberty and the democratic principle he did not find his greatest happiness in public speeches and the triumphs and defeats of the division lobby what he loved best on earth was the society of his daughter between whom and himself their best advocate for wilkes's character and he loved best to enjoy that society in the kind of sham classic retirement which had so powerful an attraction for so many of the men of the eighteenth century his cottage in the isle of wight with its doric column to the manes of churchill with its shrine to fortuna redux was his ideal of the ancient city of tusculum his tastes and pleasures were the tastes and pleasures of a man of letters he affected a curious kind of scholarship the hand that had been employed upon the north britain now devoted itself to the editing of classic texts the intellect that had been associated with the privately printed essay on woman was now associated with privately printed editions of catullus which he fondly believed to be flawless and of theophrastus whose greek text it pleased him to print without accents in his tranquil old age he made himself as many friends as in his hot manhood he had made himself enemies those who had most hated him came under the spell of his attraction even the king himself even dr johnson his interview with dr johnson is one of the most famous episodes in the literary and political history of the last century his assurance to king george that he himself had never been a wilkite is in one sense the truest criticism that has ever been passed upon him if to be a wilkite was to entertain all the advanced and all the wild ideas expressed by many of those who took advantage of his agitation then certainly wilkes was none such but he was a wilkite in the better sense of being true to his own opinions and true to his sense of public duty when he expressed the wish to have the words a friend to liberty inscribed upon his monument he expressed a wish which the whole tenor of his life the whole tone of his utterances fully justified 
and if he was loyal to his principles, he could be chivalrous to his enemies. Almost his last public appearance was at the general election of 1796, when he came forward with a magnanimity which would have well become many a better man to support the candidature of Horn Took at Westminster, of the man who, after having been his fawning friend, his fulsome flatterer, had turned against him with the basest treachery and the bitterest malignity. There may have been, surely there must have been, a vein of irony in the words in which Wilkes complimented the apostate and the turncoat as a man of public virtues, but the irony was cloaked in courtesy. If the action smacked of the cynic, at least it was done in obedience to the behest to forgive our enemies. On November 28, 1797, the old, worn, weary man, who had worked so hard and done so much, welcomed in his capacity of Chamberlain of the City of London, Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson, to the honorary freedom of the city. The setting star saluted the rising star. Nelson was then thirty-nine. He had been at sea since he was twelve. He had voyaged in polar seas and tropic waters. He had fought the Americans. He had fought the French. Hate a Frenchman as you would the devil was his simple-minded counsel of perfection. He had fought the Spaniards. He had lost an eye at Calvi. He had lost an arm at Santa Cruz. He was ten years married. His love, his error, his glory, Emma Hamilton, Caraccioli, Trafalgar were yet to come. Less than a month later, in the late December, 1797, John Wilkes was dead. He was seventy years old. For nearly forty years he had lived unknown, unheeded. For ten years he was the most conspicuous man in England, the best hated and the best loved. For twenty years more he was an honored public and private citizen. He will always be remembered as one of the most remarkable men of a century of remarkable men. End of section 12